Hey guys, this is Slow Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I wanted to let you guys know about the first Mises event of 2024. On February 17th, we will be returning to beautiful Tampa, Florida for an event dedicated to inflation, causes, consequences, and the cure. While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every time they visit the grocery store. The state and its media lapdogs try to blame inflation on corporate greed, but the true source of inflation is the Federal Reserve and the banking system. We're going to be tackling this issue with a great lineup of speakers, including Joseph Salerno, Patrick Newman, and our new Mises president, the great Tom DeLorenzo. Uh, we have a special code for Radio Rothbard viewers for a 15% discount. That's uh, Rothbard24. And you can uh, find more about this event at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024. Hey, guys, this is The Bitch with Radio Rothbard, and we've got another great offer for Radio Rothbard listeners. We have a free book that we want to send directly to your doorstep. If you are a fan of this show, you have no doubt heard us discuss Murray Rothbard's classic Anatomy of the State his dive into the mechanics of the state as we know it, what the state fears, what its greatest threats are. It is one of the all-time best Rothbard reads, a personal favorite of both myself and Ryan. You can get your free copy as a Radio Rothbard listener by visiting Mises.org slash RothPodFree. That's R-O-T-H-P-O-D free. You can also find the link in our show notes. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin, executive editor with the Mises Institute. And here with me is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And we're going to talk about the Iowa caucuses this week. Seemed like the obvious subject this time. And uh, if you've been paying any attention to that, you know that Donald Trump won in one of the least surprising results we've got in many years from uh, a primary contest. But there are, if you delve down into some of the details, there's uh, some interesting information here about what uh, what might be happening in the not-too-distant future. And we'll just speculate a bit about that as well as what's going to be happening in the general election several months from now. Um Unfortunately, we're in another election year, and we're, we're going through this whole primary thing yet again. And next is New Hampshire, then South Carolina, and on from there. And uh, what will be interesting, perhaps, most of all, is just to look at how the media treats it, um, as well as who we're told is doing well, even though everybody's going to be coming in behind uh, Donald Trump, except in maybe some rare occasion or rare exceptions. So, though. So, what uh, you pay close attention to this, you have a you've got a much better finger on the pulse of the GOP than I do. Uh, are there are there any surprises here? I mean, we expected Trump to win this, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, what 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 should we be? What should our main takeaway be from uh, this uh, this latest Iowa caucus? Yeah, well, I mean, the takeaway is I think the predictable one, which is that Trump owns the Republican Party. Um, he won by 30 p uh, points over DeSantis, who came in second. Um, that's a 30-point advantage there. Um, the previous record for Iowa, turn uh, you know, the highest 
margin was just under 13% by good old Bob Dole in 1988. Um, and that, so he more than doubled that. Now, this was a state in particular that Ron DeSantis had to win. Um, he pretty much put all of his chips in the basket there. He visited all 99 counties, the full, um, you know, went, went, did the entire state. Um, it just wasn't good enough. He had support from a number of evangelical leaders. He had, uh, you know, a lot of his campaign team, um, perhaps wrongly, uh, maybe this was a bad decision in hindsight, were Ted Cruz alums. And remember, Ted Cruz beat Donald Trump in Iowa in 2016. Um, instead, he just beat Nikki Haley by two points. Um, the media narrative from out of this is going to be that DeSantis is done, Haley survives, and Trump is the big front runner. Um, the, the Haley dynamic there is the most interesting because you know, we are now going to move on to New Hampshire. Her polling so far um, has been much stronger there. She, she is kind of within shooting distance. Um, particularly with Chris Christie out of the race, the difference between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump in some of the most recent polls is matched by the role that Chris Christie was playing in that. So I think you're going to see a whole bunch of, um, of, of effort in trying to, to stop Trump um, with New Hampshire. And then they're hoping that you know hometown uh, advantage will work in South Carolina. And then maybe that kind of puts some dents in the inevitability factor there. Um, we'll see how that plays out. Obviously, with New Hampshire as well, you have um, you, the, the Democrat situation there is worth touching on because – the, the Democrats are technically holding a primary that the National Democratic Party is not really recognizing at all. Biden is not campaigning there, even though there will be ballots. Um, some of his minor sort of rivals with the Democratic Party, um, including including a, a member of Congress, um, is trying to have a strong showing in there to kind of you know do whatever. I think the bigger aspect there is that you're going to have Democrats vote Republican or vote in the Republican primary there and try to boost Nikki Haley. There are a lot of reports about Democrats in Iowa coming to caucus for Haley. Um, and so I think we've now kind of, well, we'll see how long DeSantis lasts. Um, we've already seen um, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, abandoned his campaign after his performance yesterday. And I think he deserves to be talked about uh, to a greater length just for the role that he played in the campaign generally. Um, and of course, you know, our beloved Governor Asa Hutchinson, that, uh, that political titan, um, he dipped out after getting, I think, a tenth of a percentage point uh, last night. So this is essentially now a – the media will try to project it going forward as a two-way race between Trump and Haley. Uh, I think that we can tell pretty quickly that this is a really a one-man race and that short of – I mean, given everything else that's been thrown out Trump, you know, court cases and the like, you know, I think it's going to require a serious health incident or perhaps something uh, a little less organic. Uh, stopping Trump at this point from getting the nomination um, as a, a Republican base that is clearly motivated by revenge and anger, um, understandably so after the last few years that uh, you know, Trump is still the owner of the GOP in 2024. Well, before we move on to kind of looking into the future, because, uh, yeah, I think I don't think South Carolina is a given for um, Haley the way that her people may think. It is given um, DeSantis's regional strength, uh, but before we do that, let's uh, let's talk about what's next for Ramaswamy um, now that he's dropped out. Now, a lot of 
people uh, who are maybe unfamiliar with the with kind of really the inner workings of politics, they think that people only run for president because they think they can actually win the race for president. Um, but of course, there's many reasons to run for president. Some people do it for a living, where <laughs> they they never win, but they can somehow keep enough money coming in to pay their bills uh, year after year, just perpetual candidates. This is an actual job that some people have, um, where they just fundraise, they bring in money, they make a living that way, they never actually win. Um, but I don't think that's Ramaswamy's plan. But he definitely has clearly improved his profile nationally within the party. Uh, so what do you think, I mean, once he realized he wasn't going to win uh, a while back, because he did have that surge, but then it, that went away. But what, what's next for him? What, what do you think his, his longer term goal is here? Is he going to want any sort of government position in a Trump administration? What, what does he want? Oh, he's the one I find most fascinating because he's the only Republican candidate who my opinion of improved as a result of this campaign season. Um, still very glad that DeSantis has been my governor um, for the last uh, uh, you know, five years or so, um, particularly during COVID. His campaign was rather disappointing in a, a variety of ways. Um, and yet Vivek was out there. Um, trying to sell himself as sort of the the, the newer generation of MAGA, um, you know, more more MAGA than Trump in many ways, and someone who had no problem, um, you know, embracing you know very you know, radical um, ideas such as you know not just reforming the FBI but abolishing the FBI. Um, someone who spoke comfortably um, about the Federal Reserve, um, perhaps. I, I don't know how, how deep he really is there. He kept talking about you know some sort of bundle of uh, currencies and metals as an alternative there. But hey, I always appreciate someone willing to uh, constantly work in Fed critiques as part of his stump speech. Um, someone who was able to get some traction with sort of the, the online uh, MAGA right in certain ways. Definitely, I mean, it was the youngest man on the stage. Um, you know, he's someone who... I think it's very fascinating because his, his um, there are a lot of critiques that his record does not match his rhetoric, right? So he's so you know if you look back, he was on I think it was the the Ohio COVID response task force, or whatever they had, um, where he was you know supporting a lot of very bad COVID related policies. He had criticisms of Trump that he took the complete opposite side of during the campaign. You know, you can if you if you want to, um, you know, you, you can perhaps assume a way that his opinion changed over time, particularly when it came to January sixth, which was a kind of a, a constant point of controversy that he'd bring up in media interviews. Um, you know, he he condemned January sixth shortly after the event. Now he says it's an inside job. Again, I think a reasonable person could have both opinions, see that you know at the day of, and then kind of recognize that you know the role of the feds and stuff like that invites larger questions there. Um, you know what he's looking for going forward will be very interesting, as well as his relationship to Trump. While he was the biggest Trump defender amongst the candidates in this race, um, the last couple of days um, going into Iowa, Trump did take some pointed shots at him, um, calling him fake, calling you know voting for him a wasted vote, yada yada yada. Um, I don't think Vivek 
is going to particularly take that you know, personally at all. If, if there was a position within the administration that he would like and that Trump would offer to him, um, I think he would jump on that. Um, you know, is he someone who might be a candidate for an executive office down the road? Does he want to run for governor of Ohio after um, the disaster of uh, DeWine uh, winds down um, after his second term? Um, in a couple of years, I think I, he's someone who I think would be much more interesting in an executive role rather than, you know, going out in the legislature or the Senate or, you know, trying to, to run a, a legislative campaign like a Blake Masters. Um, I, you know, I think the best way of understanding Ramaswamy, though, is that, you know, there has been this very unique political culture within Silicon Valley that has been fairly libertarian, right? You have, you know, people like Peter Thiel, people like Blake Masters, um, people like uh, Balaji, um, who uh, with the last name I'm not going to try to pronounce, um, who has been uh, who was out uh, has been talking about Silicon Valley secession, um, you know, during the 2000s. As you know, why are why do we as a cradle of innovation need all of the ties that you know Washington and the federal regula- regulatory state put upon us? Let us do our tech stuff and, you know, Washington has no, no role, uh, when it's filled with dinosaurs, they don't understand tech. Why should we be listening to them? There has been this culture within Silicon Valley. Um, that hasn't been great on everything you saw, particularly during COVID, um, you know, early on, um, you know, these, a lot of that Silicon Valley culture was big on masks, big on using data to kind of track and monitor, um, COVID exposures and the like. So, you know, it's, it's not a perfect sort of libertarian culture there, but it's a very real distinct, I think very interesting political environment where a lot of these successful business folks have, you know, had success, have, do you think actually, you know, think with, with a, a relative level of depth about genuine, genuine political dynamics, have a appreciation for, the parasitic nature of DC. And I think Vivek really is an embodiment of that sort of environment. Um, and so I'm willing to, to treat him as a good faith actor. Again, I've appreciated the presence that he's had in this campaign. He's been, uh, he's had no problems at all going, you know, in, in the mud with Nikki Haley, particularly calling out on war issues and the like. So I would like to see more of Vivek going forward. Um, but you know, I, I'm I'm not surprised though that, and this is one of the, the problems that DeSantis has had, that Vivek has had, um, and I think this is important to look at from some of the the larger media narratives out there is that even though Trump got 51% of the Iowa vote, um, if you create two buckets, right, if you have MAGA style candidates and non MAGA candidates, you know, Republican classic candidates, if you will, um, within that MAGA camp, you'd have Trump. You would have DeSantis, which is kind of you know kind of like a reformed MAGA, right? MAGA without the tweets, um, but with bigger policy victories. Vivek, who is kind of just like hardcore New Age MAGA, right? They were all trying to appeal to the same voters. They were all hitting on kind of similar notes that guided the 2016 campaign. You know, those candidates got you know basically 80% of the field. Um, it was the Republican classic candidates of you know Nikki Haley of, you know, Chris Christie was in this lane prior to dropping out. Um, again, good old Asa Hutchinson. You know, these were candidates that while Nikki Haley tries to, you know, tr- tries to pretend to be a little bit 
more interesting than that. Ultimately, these are the candidates trying to take the party back to what it was pre-2016. And you know, I think we can very clearly see that the appetite for that um, is not what a lot of the pundit class out there um, is going to try to be selling going into New Hampshire and South Carolina. Yeah, that's. I think that's an interesting way to put it, is uh, pretending that this is more coalition politics than just uh, individual-based. Let's look at all the MAGA candidates together versus all the anti-MAGA, right? It's the Jeb Bush candidates versus the Trump candidates. And yeah, the, the Jeb Bush candidates, the Nikki Haley's, this is like a distant second. This is, they do not appear to me to be on the verge of taking back uh, the party, because even with Haley and Christie, I don't even know where Hutchison was. His guy was such a, I for, forgot he was even in the race until yesterday uh, when I saw a rundown. Um, and so, yeah, clearly MAGA's like, fine. It's just a question of who gets to lead it. Um, it still seems like it's Trump at the moment. Uh, of course, those other guys are so young, uh, DeSantis and Ramaswamy, that time is obviously on their side. Uh, I saw a thing about Trump running. If Trump loses this time, he'll run again in 2028. Uh, this was an anti-Trump thing. It's like, because you know, he's he's perfected the art of uh, you know fascist politics. For no matter how many times you lose, your your support goes up or whatever. I'm like, eh, what, how old will Trump be in 2028? Eighty-three uh, uh, or four something? I I just don't see that. I mean, I guess you could prop him up like they have uh, Biden. But uh, there seems to be plenty of younger MAGA candidates who want to want to step in to that, um, which I would view as an certainly not my ideal Republican Party, but certainly an improvement over the uh, George W. or Jeb Bush version uh, of the party. And I think if you're part of the old guard, that's pretty disconcerting, um, pretty unpleasant for you to realize that uh, the party is just not going the way you want. Hence, Bill Kristol ends up his his only hope is Nikki Haley, basically. That's it. Otherwise, he's just going to be endorsing Democrats from now on. Um, but uh, New Hampshire, I mean, moving on to that, New Hampshire, uh, it doesn't seem that really reflects whether you're going to win the <laughs> the nomination or not. Uh, it's an interesting contest. Uh, Pat Buchanan won it back in '92 didn't win in Iowa that but that ended up being the high point of of his race and that's that's the case for a lot of candidates is they can do they can blow out everybody else in New Hampshire but then they're back to second or third place in South Carolina and so let's just look at South Carolina then uh, it, now that's where Nikki Haley's from um, but even the media which loves Nikki Haley, uh, from what I saw, at least on Morning Joe, they were having to admit that, well, DeSantis, I mean, he knows how to can he knows how to campaign in a place like South Carolina. Uh, it's it's not unlike Florida in the way that Iowa is. That's just a very different situation. Um, so I don't know. My personal opinion is that I don't see South Carolina as a given for Nikki Haley. But but what do you think on that? Well, right now, Trump is has a pretty significant lead within um the polls in South Carolina. Um, there hasn't been a, a well. I'm Trump. even talking about second place here. I don't even. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I assume Trump's going to get first. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I could see DeSantis getting second there also. Yeah. So so Haley right now is is kind of depending on the poll. You know, has about a quarter of the vote. 
Um, again, she benefited a little bit as well from Tim Scott um, not being part of the conversation um, after a really disastrous presidential campaign in, in its own right. Um, someone who, again, I, I think was probably within that camp of people running for president for the hope of getting a bigger ring down the road in another another field. Wouldn't surprise me at all if he uh, ends up being a replacement for Mitch McConnell down the line. That's a whole other problem for another day. Um, the problem with the, that DeSantis has is that, again, like the, the, the voters that he, you know, that, that you know, he, he's been leaning into his legislative victories. Um, the, the, the base that he's looking for is, you know, a lot of the same people that are, are drawn to Trump. And I think one of the things that we've seen is that the, the personality, I mean, Trump has such a unique place within American politics. Now, it can be very frustrating, right? If you, if you care about policy and you look at the ways that Trump's time in office, um, did not live up to the rhetoric of the 2016 campaign. If you look at you know, COVID being the most obvious example, um, you know, not being able to, to you know, put in place, you know, having the military ignore his orders, surrounding himself with a bunch of Bush folks and the like. Um, you know, the, the frustration is if you actually look at the substance of the matter, Trump failed um, in a lot of ways from what voters were indicating that they wanted the 2016 campaign, but a lot of those voters, at the, in, just from an emotional level, still have a loyalty to Trump. The way that the, the prosecutions have gone since he's left office has only doubled down on that. Um, the concerns about the uh, integrity of the 2020 election still plays a role with that. So you still have a lot of people. I, I think that within online circles, the hostility between Trump and DeSantis is a distraction from the way that most people feel like if you in, in polling has indicated this is that if you if you look at people that Trump is their first choice, if you ask them who their second choice is, a large percentage of that second choice for Trump voters is DeSantis. The problem is that DeSantis is not not being able to go from second choice to first choice with that large percentage of the Republican electorate. Um, and so, you know, I think what DeSantis was hoping for was getting a win out of Iowa. Utilizing some of the grassroots infrastructure he was able to have, you know, he had the endorsement of Kim Reynolds, very popular governor there. Um, you know, had a lot of a lot of his campaign infrastructure has been based off of the endorsements of state legislators and the like, where he can kind of you know, they've been looking to Florida for ideas for their policy stuff, and, and, and so that he, he's kind of had built-in professional relationships there that he didn't really have with you know, his congressional colleagues. He, you know, his personality was not one that you know made him a, a, a very uh, personally popular figure. I mean, did, did, did keep good company. You know, Thomas Massey has um, regularly talked about how he was one of his best friends uh, when he was in Congress. But I, I think DeSantis is going to have a hard time changing that narrative of inevitability um, for those voters that might love, you know, they might be the ones vacationing in Florida. They might be the ones that sought out Florida as a refuge during the craziness of COVID. But when it comes down to it, their position is, well, Trump is the best president of my lifetime. He got screwed over last time. Um, DeSantis, you know, he can have a shot in the, down the line, but I'm going to go with the guy that I know because Trump deserves this. You know, I, you know, I, I have a, you know, it, what happened to him is not right. And so we got to justify that injustice. We have to, we have to rectify that rather than go off and, and you know, go in with, with, with a, the candidate who has not performed particularly well. Um, and so I, it would be interesting to me. I, I, I think that if he does not drop out in the next 24 hours, I assume to say this gets through South Carolina. Um, but the polling right now, it shows him between you know 15 to 7 points in South Carolina. 
I don't know where he's going to be able to move that needle to to get closer to that 25% threshold. I, I do think if he comes in second place to Nikki Haley in South Carolina, if he's able to do that, that'd be a major win. If he's able to, to beat Nikki Haley in South Carolina, that might be enough to just kind of let the process play out, see what all of these non-political factors that are still lingering with Trump, see if that has any impact at all. Um, but I, I think if he comes in a third place, particularly if it's a distant third place, then South Carolina is the end of the road because I don't think he's going to want to limp into Florida and get embarrassed in Florida, his hometown, um, because yeah, I, I think that would be a very bad look. So you know, DeSantis kind of has that clock as well. Is that you know, whenever Florida comes up, you know, if, if he's not in a position to win that state, then I think he's got to get out. So it's a, um, you know, it's 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 a, it's a difficult situation right now for for, for DeSantis. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the whole thing, but the emotional impact of feeling that uh, Trump got screwed last time somehow, however, whatever that means, like it means different things to different people. But I, I had to laugh when I saw the freak out in the media over the fact that um, I guess the exit poll showed that 60 something percent of people participating in the caucus felt that uh, Trump had actually won in 2020, which the media just hates the fact that anybody would doubt the uh, the official outcome of the 2020 election. But I think this feeling that and I wonder what the if I could go back in time and see what the feeling was in terms of like Grover Cleveland supporters when he lost his second race, right? And that they just harbored for four years this feeling of, all right, we're going to come back in four years and we're going to screw those Republicans. Um, there's, there seems to be a certain American thing about we got we got work this last time and we're going to show them what's what. That seems to be a motivating factor here. And uh, I I got to say, I, I get it. Yeah, I mean, I uh, even though I wouldn't call myself a big Trump supporter by any means, I do like the idea that the regime hates him so much and and was so delighted the fact that he lost in 2020 just to have him come back and rub their noses in it. Just uh, I think there's a certain pleasure that many people would get from that. So I could, I think maybe this whole the percentage maybe of the people who think that he lost in 20. Uh, 20 maybe could be interpreted as a proxy for enthusiasm for just how much people want Trump to win among those who support him. And so I think, yeah, if anything, that that actually maybe translates into to more motivation uh, to vote for Trump in many cases. But there's plenty of other people who would vote for him for other reasons or they're just they see him as the inevitable candidate. Um, but after South Carolina, then I haven't checked the schedule then, uh, when is super Tuesday, right? It's in March. Um, and that's going to be, I mean, that's when everybody's going to start dropping out, right? Is Nikki, Nikki Haley's going to survive long enough to make it to super Tuesday. And then it's going to have to require that to really kind of create that death knell for her there. I think that, uh, Haley has a unique situation where she will not lack for, uh, you know, I think there'll be enough financial resources for her to to stay on for a while, um, just because you just have so much, you know, within the large donor class, you have a very, you know, strong dislike of Trump that still exists. I mean, she got a big endorsement from the Koch brothers, for example, um, which ended up creating some uh, some discontent amongst their grassroots because, you know, when you have people that are used to knocking on doors, you know, uh, uh, for you know 
libertarianish causes. Um, having to go knock on doors for Nikki Haley is a little bit of a different taste um, out there. Um, so I, I could see her keeping on again. I mean, I, you know, if we we're going to to go um, and talk about all extreme outcomes, I mean, if, if something was to happen to Trump, um, which again could be judicial, could be health wise, could be something more aggressive than that, then you know, Nikki Haley sitting there as the only active candidate. Um, you know, that's probably the only that's the only environment where Nikki Haley I think can win in the modern Republican Party, right? Is if, if Trump was actually removed and no one else is that left, then Nikki Haley, um, you know, she she would be in a, a pretty good spot. Um, and I think you know, uh, but looking further down the dates, um, uh, Super Tuesday is March fifth. Um, you have a, a number of states at play there. Um, Florida, which would be the hard deadline for DeSantis, is March nineteenth. Um, a few weeks after that, um, you know, coming up next, uh, along with before South Carolina, you have Nevada, which has a, a caucus environment, which Trump seems to be dominating there. Uh, Michigan follows up after that, um, and then you have Idaho. So you have a very kind of interesting collection of you know you've got your big Midwest state. Um, obviously, Michigan is going to be a major center point when it comes to the general election campaign. South Carolina gives you a little taste of the South. Um, Idaho, Idaho, and Nevada. Um, uh, again, Nevada being a caucus, there's kind of some some interesting smaller sort of dynamics there. Um, but I, I think the, the the enthusiasm point that you you mentioned is one of the most interesting dynamics of this race, not only in the primary but also in the general election, because Trump is ultimately what is going to drive the enthusiasm for both sides. The amount of people that are passionately pro Biden at this point, even amongst the Democrats is very, very low um, for, for a variety of reasons. He has, um, you know, he, he is not someone who, that enthuses the base, uh, energizes the base at all. Um, but what energizes Democrats is the specter of, you know, fascist, you know, racist, um, the embodiment of everything that is evil, Donald Trump, um, you know, who is trying to destroy, you know, the, the nation that they claim to love. And so, you know, when we go into the general election, it's going to be this interesting dynamic of just pro and anti-Trump enthusiasm, um, somewhat of a repeat of 2020. I, th I think Biden has less um, support from him, uh, you know, him as a person than he did in 2020. Um, again, I think there's, there's a lot of disappointment for a variety of reasons there. But that same dynamic that went into 2020 on top of all of the, the crazy dynamics um, with the, the the cloud of COVID and, and all the the election changes there, um, you know we're, we're just going to see this play out again. And I think what's what's what Trump has going for him is in a similar way something that that Biden kind of had going for him in 2020, which is the sense of nostalgia. Um, you know, if you aren't this happy with you know, if you are feeling anxious about the state of the country in 2020, then it's very easy to think about the good old days of you know the Obama years, where you did not have the same anxieties, and so therefore Biden is going to look better just purely based off of that sort of gut feeling of nostalgia, wanting to to make politics normal again in some ways, you know, being exhausted by what Trump did to the news cycle, um, you know, everything going kind of crazy. That was a I think a, an emotional appeal that played into a lot of votes of independents. You know, swing voters and the like going into 2024, I think that swing voter um, is perhaps a lot has, has real nostalgia about 
you know, what things were like in 2019, 2018. And I think that's why you're seeing on general election ballot, general election polls, you know, he's performing rather well in states like Michigan, states like Pennsylvania, even states like Arizona, um, you know, states that have not been particularly favorable to Republicans, you know, during the Trump years, um, you know, Arizona lost the governorship, lost the Senate seat there. Um, uh, during Trump's time, Pennsylvania has gone increasingly blue. Uh, Michigan has gone increasingly blue. Um, I think that those play, those states might very well be in play because of just the, the feeling of anxiety, um, economic and otherwise, that really is hitting a lot of these people that you know, they're, they're not obsessing about, you know, they're, they're not the ones that are turning on and consuming garbage news every single day. Or you know having uh, you know their opinions shaped by the class that hyperventilates over the mere thought of Donald Trump, and so that that dynamic I think going forward is going to be the dynamic of the general election, assuming you know Trump is there at the end of the day, and um, you know that environment you know it, it's it's a very interesting situation because on the one side a lot of the motivations here um, you know the, the critique of the current order. The, the hostility to the political class, um, the dismissal of the media, these are all things that are motivating voters and I think are the key driving force motivating voters that people like us, I think, would, would mostly celebrate, right? You know, the Trump has always been at his best when he's defined by who hates him. The problem is, what does that mean should Trump win? You know, what is his VP list going to look like? You know, is it going to be... Um, you know, someone like a, a, a Joni Ernst in Iowa, for example, who's basically a, you know, a Liz Cheney with the more experience on a hog farm, right? That would be a very bad sign for what a Trump administration 2.0 would actually look like. Um, is it going to be someone like, um, um, you know, is it going to be Nikki Haley? I mean, that's an idea that the Trump campaign allows to, you know, Trump has taken some shots at her. He's tried to downplay it, but one of Trump's top campaign officials um, kind of has, has, never taken advantage of killing that rumor, um, which I think would, would horrify a lot of Trump voters. Um, you know, someone who, you know, someone who I find very interesting is the New York Congresswoman, Elise Stefanik, who her voting record is as bad as most of the GOP within DC, but someone who has been very shrewd in her loyalty to Trump. You know, is she someone that Trump might see as, you know, if the, if the only measure for the VP is loyalty, loyalty, lo loyalty, and she has played that card very well, then is someone like her, someone that could be positioned in the VP, and then that creates a whole different wild card um, in terms of, you know, should, you know, whether it is during that term for a variety of reasons with Trump's age, with external factors out there, um, you know, what would that look like? Or even setting up the stage to being the heir apparent, um, what would that mean for the direction of the party? Um, you know, any semblance of ideology or principle or policy as being any sort of framework for what is motivating Republican voters is completely out the window at this point. It is all one's emotional attachment to the man, Donald J. Trump, and ultimately whatever decisions he makes when it comes to employment, when it comes to you know, these selections, I mean, that's going to end up defining the, the, the party for the next four or so years. Will he lean into revenge mode Trump? Will he, will he go in there and just try to destroy all the people that have tried to destroy him? If so, maybe that ends up bearing some some fruits that are, are interesting and good. If he immediately reverts back to wanting to be – you're trying to win over 
um, the folks that have been against them, which is kind of what he did after 2016, then is the Republican Party in a far worse state ideologically because of the people that have been able to just kind of ride that Trump loyalty coattails. That's going to be a, that. That to me is 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 the most interesting question going forward. It's far more interesting than the horse race of the political cycle, um, because again, I think that's going to end up shaping what does the oppositional party to the current progressive regime look like in the near future. And I, I think that anxiety is what drove a lot of the the DeSantis support. Um, I think that's what what drove. A lot of people like Thomas Massey burning a lot of capital, trying to promote DeSantis during this, this campaign cycle. Um, so what does that look like going forward? Um, I think that's going to end up really shaping what you know this, this kind of cha- ma- major change in the American political system, um, the party system, um, look like going forward. And again, that, that could be something promising or something you know, e- even more depressing than what politics usually is in this country. Yeah, I think the question is, did Trump learn anything as mm-hmm. <laughs> as president the first time? Or is he just going to go back to surrounding himself with people like Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, giving all those positions to people who hate Donald Trump's guts? Uh, it, he was always a lousy administrator, great campaigner, great with the social media. But when it came to actually managing the White House, it was embarrassing uh, in many cases. And it all just came down to, well, the regime must hate him for some reason, because I never really saw a good reason for just the absolute insane hatred that he was getting from the FBI and uh, the the real stalwart permanent government types who just absolutely hated his guts uh, and were willing to sow chaos to do it. That always just made me think, well, there must be something good about this guy. But his appointments were just not good. So the question is, I mean, if he if he continues to talk about making Nikki Haley his VP, you're like, man, did this guy learn anything at all uh, from his first term? And quite possibly he didn't. I don't think Trump is some genius. Uh, but uh, I think that is an open question. And I think for the sorts of people who listen to this podcast, the sorts of people who read Mises.org, who are naturally suspicious of Trump and hardly your standard Trump worshiper, but maybe still give, willing to give him a chance because the regime hates him. Um, that's good. I think that's the number one potential for a major disappointment is Trump starts surrounding himself then with, again, the same sorts of horrible people that he did in the first term. Um, but we won't know unless he wins. Uh, so <laughs> that's still a few months off. So we'll see how that goes. Well, Thanks for listening to Radio Rothbard. We'll have to come back and do this again probably after Super Tuesday and kind of see where things are going because that's at that point it's probably you're getting close into just general election territory, really. Um, and uh, we'll see how that goes. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Radio Rothbard, probably on a different topic. Um, and so we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.